back now with more Reset. I'm your host, Sasha Ann Simons. In the 19th and 20th centuries, the U.S. government removed tens of thousands of Native American children from their homes, placed them into boarding schools, where they were forced to assimilate into white culture. And that pain still echoes today, with generations of children growing up hearing their indigenous languages only in whispers, or not even at all. That was the case for Doreen Weesey. She's an enrolled member of the White Earth Ojibwe, and she has since dedicated her life to keeping her language and culture alive. Welcome, Doreen. Welcome. Oh, thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Your mother and both of your grandmothers attended boarding schools. I mean, what was the impact of the schools on your family? Well, I think the biggest impact was when I realized that they knew none of their language and or the history of their tribes or anything about things like treaties and what, you know, how they come to be born at, at White Earth. Well, my, um, and so I think, and I wrote a poem about um, that starts off, my mother didn't know why she was born at White Earth. It's like people, it's all of that memory, historic memory it's like it had been erased from their minds. And this is really what mm. happened at the boarding school is that people grew up not knowing anything kind of except the media uh, and, and Christianity. So they didn't talk to you much then about their experiences? No, because they, they, they didn't really, you know, they were, I think, as most Native people, they were concerned about surviving. We've really come through hundreds of years of, of survival come out of a period when most of our people died or were killed uh, out of a we really had this incredibly great genocide in this country which most people don't know about um in fact in the, coming here the lift driver said to me where did your people come from i was shocked just, he was from africa just like that yeah just like that and he had been he had been here for 30 years and did not know where american indian that we're the original people of this of this country so we had a great conversation. Well, I bet you uh, had some educating to do in that, <laughs> in that uh, lift ride. So what's it been like then for you trying to piece together your family's history? It's been um, difficult because both my, I, I never got to interview my grandmothers. Right? And I think that um, that is really what, as I, I, I first started off in, uh, as a filmmaker because I wanted to change the image of Native people. When I was growing up, the image of Native people was still cowboys and Indians on television and um, our appearances on products. And also there was a, it was a beginning of some focus on Native people in urban areas, but it was very negative. And there was no image of Native women whatsoever. So my, that was my effort. I wanted to change that image and so that I began searching for my own history and then the history of other people that... Um, I worked with it when I came to Chicago. Yeah. Well, um, back in the 1980s, you co-directed a project at the Newberry Library, and it was to capture oral histories of American Indians here in Chicago. And now you've been asked to do an oral history for Newberry, right? So what's it like to now be sort of on the other side of this process? Now you're the interviewee. Well, I'm still doing some of the interviewing, too. Uh, <laughs> so you're, you're wearing both hats. I'm wearing both hats. But um, it's it's great because it makes you being an interviewee, you have to think about things uh, differently. It's not the way you normally think and talk in your everyday life. You have to really reflect and think about your own history, your family history. What are those you know? What are those reasons you came here? 
Um, and I recently did that. Uh, I was I had to write a application for the um, Field MacArthur uh, Leaders Award, and in doing that, I had to like kind of summarize my whole life in one page, and it really was great because it made me realize that everything that I had worked uh, for and on was about social justice, and and that that kind of oral history had been a way that I had learned mm. about all of those those things that we had been, um, that we were not allowed to do. As an example, we were not allowed to sing and dance until the 1920s. My father was born in 1912, so it was in his childhood. He could not sing and dance Amer- you know, American Indian. Mm-hmm. And then the same thing with when people went to boarding schools, they were not allowed to speak their language. So this is in our, you know, a time that I know the people who lived through this time. So then it really had a great impact on me and, and, and the work that I was to do. So in doing oral history, I, I guess I just want to learn as much as I can and I want people to teach as much as they can because our, our history is oral. It's not written in books. You won't find our history in the three universities, Chicago, universities, the big universities. Most of it is still in the hearts and minds of our people. You've got to tell them, which is which is the work that you're doing. You you interviewed elders who are now no longer alive. Um, Susan Kelly Power died last year. She helped found the American Indian Center of Chicago. Uh, But you say that when you interviewed her, she would always repeat the story of another woman, Clara. Who's Clara? Tell us about her. <laughs> Susan was very humble. She never wanted to be recognized for the work that she did. And she always said, remember Clara, remember Clara. Because when Susan came here, there were no, uh, the Indian Center hadn't been founded. There was no one to help the Native people that came here. And often they came, like the new immigrants, they had no place to live. They couldn't speak English. They had they had no idea what these jobs were that they were applying for. They They had never worked these jobs. So Clara opened her home to Native people that came here, let them sleep on her floor, always had a pot of soup on her stove, and she um, and she taught Native people how to sew. She was a seamstress in the uh, dressmaking district, and she was, so that's, she also taught them a job. Mm. So that to Susan, this was a value that she wanted us to continue, that she wanted us uh, to continue to help each other as Native people. And so that was why she always told me the story of Clara. And I did get to meet Clara when I was a young um, photographer. I did meet Clara. I have a photograph of her that I took and some other elders that I worked with at the time at the Native American Committee. So that um, I love it when I can tie my story to the stories of other people and then that they they can also then spread out to their relatives and Mm -hmm. other people. Like I've told that story to people that are related to Clara that never knew that story. That's incredible. So I want them to celebrate Clara too. Yeah, now they won't forget about Clara for (laughs) sure. Uh, You came to Chicago when you were 18. You're 74 now, Mm -hmm. I understand, right? You've lived an incredible and full life. So I'm curious to hear this from you. What do you want people to remember about you? Oh my, that's a really hard question. Um, I guess that I did everything I could to help our people. That I became uh, educated and once I did that, I realized that that was going to be the path out of poverty. 
and that that would be and then that we but we also needed to know about our culture our language our music our dance we needed to know all that to be whole whole people in uh our our mind body and spirit because without that we we would have we would have been empty we would have been lost mm-hmm. like much like I was when I came here at 18 I didn't know you music felt lost and dance and my um and and my my language so that I did I felt once I met but I mean, I felt lost in that, oh, but not for too long because I met, a, there was a whole thriving community here of Native people that had most had come during relocation and they were, it was like a renaissance because it was the only time in the history, urban history, where there was federal money. So we built schools. We, I was just talking to the, again, to the cab driver telling him about my first program that I built was the uh, Native American Committee Adult Learning Center. I, I developed the first GED program. I taught people to read. I was only in college myself. And so Incredible. I was right in the center of everything that was going on. The people built a clinic. They built a college. And I, I later was able to become president of that college. And so it's all it, it all was a fantastic um life here yeah you've you've dedicated your life to, to education for american indians this is reset i'm sasha ann simons if you're just tuning in we're talking with doreen weesey who's president of the american indian association of illinois and we're discussing the preservation of indigenous languages as well as oral traditions so something else you you talk about of course we know you you are very uh, big on the importance of learning from your elders right also of doing service in return for knowledge. You experienced that firsthand with your uncle, Leon Mike. He was a powwow singer. So I want to listen to the grand entry to a powwow that he participated in. What did he teach you? Oh, that would take a long time. <laughs> sum it up for us. <laughs> sum about it. Um, I guess that, um, well, the the magic of uh, American Indian music and dance and um, also, and also um, and spirituality that that it's all together and that we um, it's part of who we need to be. It's part of what the Creator wants us to do and and be part of. And I think that um, and that the resilience. Uh, this was a man that was blind. He had no legs. He was a kidney transplant. He had terrible finger neuropathy. And that he was, he wanted to be out living life, helping other people. He, he wanted to go, we traveled around the country praying for people, mm-hmm. setting up special services for them, singing for people, dancing for people. And it was, he wanted to be part of that. And so I think that that resilience that never once did he ever, um, until his final day, uh, blame the, the creator for how he was, how his physical body was. He praised him to that final moment, and I got to be there on that final day. Oh, that's special. What's your approach or your advice to people who want to record their oral histories? Oh, I encourage everyone to do it, no matter if you're American Indian or uh, or whatever, wherever your people are from. Because there's so many things that get lost and we don't have an opportunity to ask those questions to um, our elders, to our parents, to our grandparents. And that there's, it makes your, your history so much more alive. And then you can, you can tie it into, into uh, historic 
moments in history of the United States and the world and see why a little bit about why people did do the things they do and why they moved to Chicago or why they, you know, they lived in a certain neighborhood or why, you know, why this happened or that happened. And without that, we're just kind of limited. We're, we're linking ourselves to that history. Our history of our people makes our lives so much richer. And thanks for sticking with us. This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and we are celebrating the rich history and culture of Indigenous peoples. Our guest is Doreen Weesey. She is an enrolled member of the White Earth Ojibwe. She has since dedicated her life to keeping her language and culture alive. Doreen, we were just talking about your advice for folks who want to keep their oral histories alive. But I'm curious, take us back. I mean, why choose to do oral histories in the first place? Why not written ones? Well, our life is all oral. Our life has, for thousands of years, our life has have been oral. That's how we have uh, taught our children, and that's how our ancestors taught each other and their children. And so I think that it's the, um, and as we fast forward to modern times, when children were taken and placed in the boarding schools, and then when people realized what they had lost, I think it really became a movement where people realize what they had lost, that then they realize we've better capture that history, that music, those, that music, that language, that knowledge from our elders before they all pass away. So I would say this movement's probably started in the 60s and with Native people themselves. Anthropologists had tried it in the past, and there are some wonderful books that were written. There are uh Bibles that are written in tribal languages. Mm-hmm. Some in some places, that's the only documents that exist because the people were killed or and or died from disease. So there is no other, there is no other record. So for for me, I guess like because I had an interest in filmmaking, and that um, that is basically oral. It has a visual component also, but it's basically oral. And then. Um, Radio and television, and um, then and and uh, that I I began to see that uh, it was necessary to do that, otherwise we would have lost so much of, of who we are and who you know what our histories mm-hmm. were. And then of course the uh, advent of the the lighter weight video equipment um, that have really helped. And now let's say the 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 phone, you know, where you can record things and and edit them in your own phone. I mean, my first video recorder was a 45 pound reel to reel Sony black and white video recorder. Wow. That was, we thought was light and amazing. And <laughs> of course. <laughs> so it was the next best thing. It was the next best thing. <laughs> but I think we wanted to, um, so the main part of it is to me, to, to really, to, to me, to record our, our life's history and the, the history of our tribes and families. Yeah. You point to language as a thread for culture. What do you mean by that? Language contains our worldview. So that when we study language, when we learn language, we realize how different our languages are from English. Mm-hmm. And that, that that then sets the stage for how our people saw the world in very different ways so that if you have a language let's say um, let's say the Eskimos have um, or the Aleuts know have 
a hundred different ways of saying snow. We have one word in English. We have the word snow. Yeah. So then let's say if we have, you know, we have different ways in terms of uh, of uh, where verbs are placed, where nouns are placed, and how even when that translation, let's say there were non-native people who were recording words for Bibles and things like that, they didn't understand the meaning of the word they were hearing. They kind of understood it in the way of English so that it wasn't really quite saying what it what it what it really meant right so like i'm trying to think of a good example that i could give you Um, was it in a way being watered down it was watered down right because there were one word did not mean one word or it might not even be the word that they thought it would could mean a whole sentence i get you or it could be um in our in ojibwe language and i haven't learned it yet there is a, a a a a word for um blueberry pie that is almost a sentence long because it didn't, you know, in English we say blueberry pie, like we see a blueberry and a pie. Yeah. No, this was a, it, what the blueberry pie in Ojibwe says is it's the way you make the pie, you know, all the ingredients that are in it, the process, so that you're, they, because they had, ah. we didn't have pie. You know, we didn't, our ancestors <laughs> didn't make pie. But what's good about that is that languages are alive when they continue to make new words. Well, while we're on it, why don't you teach us a little bit more Ojibwe today? Okay, okay, how do you introduce yourself in the language? Bonjour, Anine. Bonjour, that sounds like French. It does, but it's not. It's uh, it's uh, say it one more time. It's it's uh, was made before the French connections. Ah, and that's why people, some people say. Bonjour, and, uh, and but in, in uh, Canada, it's Bonjour Anin. There are 26 different Ojibwe tribes in the United States and over 100 in Canada. We're the largest tribe east of the Mississippi and have been for uh, for probably several hundred years or maybe longer because um, we didn't have census and <laughs> it was before the Internet. Right, so right, right. I don't know really what the census was, but of course. we do know that Ojibwe is the most prevalent language um, as I said, east of the Mississippi and in Canada, along with Cree, they're about equal Cree and Ojibwe. So that um, those are uh, that's one reason we teach that that's a prevalent language that is being taught. But that said, there are many different dialects. You can imagine 126 different groups of people. They say things in a different way. So, but that is everyone knows what that means if you say Bujuanin. Bujuanin. You can say you're saying hello. What's the song that you sing when you're teaching children? One of the first songs that I created, because I'm very bad at languages, um, so I would take a couple words and then I would make them into a song that they would, um, uh, uh, you know, a, a, uh, a song that they already knew. An example was um, uh, um, Row, Row Your Boat. So then I, I wanted them to learn the words miigwech, which is thank you. And then miigwech to the great spirit um, as a form of prayer before we had, I have an after school children's program and as a way of thanking the creator for our food. So then we, I would have, I taught them to sing when they were very little, like four years old. Miigwech, miigwech, kijimanadu, miigwech, miigwech, kijimanadu. And today they're now 16 years old and they still remember that song. Oh my gosh, that's so delightful. <laughs> What is your favorite Ojibwe word or phrase? Don't tell me it's blueberry pie. No, because I can't <laughs> say that. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Um, 
I think uh, Anishinaabe, because Anishinaabe is the, I means um, human being, first people, um, and it, it's a, it's the umbrella under which people recognized all the speakers of and the descendants of the speakers of Ojibwe, and that it um, and it's related to, I guess linguists are related it to the Algonquin languages. But it, it draws, again, it draws that historic thread between the people, all the people that are here today mm-hmm. that speak uh, a language similar to Ojibwe that were all Anishinaabe people. Yeah. Tell us what language revitalization efforts look like right now at the American Indian Association of Illinois. We basically work with the people, with people that know their language and when we can get them to teach our children in our after-school program, we work with them to do that. We currently, um, well, this past summer, we had a summer, our first leadership institute for, for our teens. And in that, we went through um, an entire uh, lesson, oh, well, several, a booklet of lessons on the Ho-Chunk language. Because our children, we have our Ho-Chunk and Ojibwe mm-hmm. and Lakota. And so then we brought in uh, a Lakota teacher who will, um, I need to back step a little bit, but the song that we heard and the man that was singing, my uncle, Leon Mike, he's Ho-Chunk, uh, yes. similar to your last speaker. <laughs> yes. But he, um, and so we, that's why we taught that language. And I know songs in the Ho-Chunk language. And then, so then we uh, had in Ojibwe, there was a man that just recently did a book and he's a language, a linguist. He's, he's native. He's a, he's Ojibwe as well. And he wrote a book called the, Se- the grandfather teachings, the seven grandfather teachings. Mm-hmm. And so we went through that entire book and all the lesson plans to, to do with that this nice. summer. So the children learned about this historic grandfather teachings. And then it's a lot about values and about language and about history, all combined. It's so not, great that they're getting that now. Yeah, yeah. And then we also had our, um, our elder uh, teacher who's Lakota that she came and visited their, their the class. And she brought her teenage daughter with her. And so she kind of brought you know, history with her. And she talked a little bit about, she actually was in boarding schools in Chicago, a boarding school and an orphanage here. So she kind of talked about how she overcame a lot of the struggles mm-hmm. you know, of being homeless, living in the park, things like that. But that she, you know, and that she loves her language and still, but she also has a master's degree yeah. from the University of Illinois. Well, besides being here on Reset with us, tell us before you go, I mean, how else are you, marking Indigenous Peoples Day. I am going to be on my way after I leave here to Palatine Library, and I'm going to bring my dance company, the Blackhawk Performance Company. We're going to be having over 20 uh, singers and dancers there, and we're, to, we're going to meet the people of Palatine. Awesome. Sounds like a great time. That's Doreen Weesey, president of the American Indian Association of Illinois. She spent her life dedicated to preserving her Indigenous language and history. Thank you so much for, for sharing with us today. Thank you.